The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and our sermon will be looking at verses 9 through 11. But I'd like to begin reading back at verse 5. What you're about to hear really is God's word given to you as a kingly gift. Please listen to it as it's read in your hearing. But put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices, and have put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge, after the image of its creator. Here there is not Jew, or Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Well, this is indeed the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our great God and fathers, we turn again to your word on the day that in grace you have called for us to put it aside from our earthly labors into pursue you and all that we need spiritually for the week that is ahead. Father, we pray that this Lord's Day would be a market day of the soul, where we would come and buy from you food and drink without cost. We thank you that you call those who are poor in spirit to draw near and to receive all that is needful for us. Father, we're a needy people. We pray that you would abundantly supply our needs. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, there are, <coughs> excuse me, there are uh, several things that if you were to just read them at first blush in the Word of God would strike you as exceptionally astounding. There's, there's some stories that you read it and you think, well, that was odd or, well, that makes sense. But then there are, there are other statements that come to us that when you, you read them, if you're paying attention, you, you go back again and, and read it again. And then it, it still takes yet another time to go back and read it again, not because it was so complex, quite, quite the opposite. It was so simple and yet spoke of such a profound reality, there's an internal wrestling that goes on and and says, as it were, how can that be true? Not that it's a bad thing, it's just too good, seemingly, to be true. And it takes a, a fair bit to get our arms wrapped around it. Now, one of those statements, there's lots of them, but one of them comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone, 
is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're reading your Bible with eyes open, you run across that and you think, well, well I think I would qualify as one of the anyone's. Uh, it, it doesn't say that I have to be of a certain parentage or a wealth status or societal status or talent or oper- It just says anyone. And if anyone comes and is in Christ, they are really, literally, not figuratively, not make-believe. They are a new creature in him. That old life has gone away. That new life has come. And if you could sit back in your chair and and, and begin to get at least the arms of your understanding wrapped around it, you would have to then sit back and go, well, my goodness, wouldn't that change a lot? That seems like it would have some repercussions. There's events in our life where we just, it hits us all of a sudden, wow, life won't be the same ever again. The first time that I held my oldest daughter, Evangeline, it hit me. My life will never be the same. In a good way, obviously, but it'll never be the Well, similarly, there's these truths in the Christian faith where when they hit us, we just think, you know what? Man, stuff's going to be different. Now, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is putting his, his finger on in our text in Colossians. He is uh, and has been telling us, the reader, that we who are in Christ are new creatures in Christ. We're part of that new creation. Now, that new creation life looks differently than the life that we had before. And so we want to take that, that piece of it and take it apart and under three headings. Now the first, it's cheating, I guess four headings. The first would be review because this text really shouldn't be separated from the text that comes before it. And so a brief review on where we've come from. We've looked at five vices and five sins and you've asked, what's the difference between the two? Nothing. Just five and five sounds better than ten points and so we went with that. So... Paul is, if if you just look at verse 5, he has begun unfolding for us, and we'll get to the, the kind of the foundation for it here in a minute, the things that ought to be put to death in our life. Now, he opens with five of them. The things that ought not to be going on in the life of the man or the woman who is in Christ involve sexual immorality, all forms of impurity, passion, evil desires and covetousness, which, in case we were wondering, he has to add, oh, by the way, it's idolatry. Don't fiddle around with it. And so <clears throat> of those things that were, that were called in the word of God to stay away from, to not just stay away, staying away from is like when your parents like, hey, don't go near the creepy house at the end of the you know, cul-de-sac or whatever. Just, just you know, go away from it. That's not the word he uses. The word he uses is that we are to be putting these things to death. Now there is, as we've mentioned before, holy violence involved in that verb. There needs to be a violence in the Christian life wherewith we wage war on the sins in our life. We we shouldn't be 
with, our, with regard to our relationship with sin, uh, a similar situation to what North and South Korea have. Still open hostility, but no one's shooting anything. And we just have this awkward, like, well, we're close, but we're going to not cross. No. He calls the Christian to, in each of these areas, wage open warfare on them. And if we need any kind of motivation as to, well, why would we wage warfare on these things? He mentions in, the, or in verse 6, remember that the, the wrath of God, like an unavoidable freight train, is rumbling towards these things. Have, therefore, nothing to do with them. You've been rescued from the wrath of God towards those things in your life. Now have nothing to do with them. And then he moves on and recounts a little bit of our history in verse 7. This is the way that you did once live life. A a huge shift has happened. But now, verse 8, put them all away. We mentioned how that that too is quite a a violent activity, a, a violent action. These are to be thrust far from you, not toyed with, not played with, not endured, put away. Like a filthy garment from you, thrown in the garbage, burned, ashes poured in the river, have nothing left to do with it. Now, if you look at verse 8, he has five more things, and most of them have specific application to this wretched thing, your mouth. And this thing is the vent for an even worse evil, this thing. And we often would say, like, well, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean what I said. No, that wasn't the problem. Problem was you meant that mess because it came out of your heart through the means of your mouth. And so he says of these things that Christians have no business uh, toying with, he lists Anger, what we talked about, more of a chronic, slow-burning um, disposition, or wrath, you know, the explosive kind of anger, or malice, that wishing and wanting ill intent on behalf of others, wanting them to fail, wanting them to be seen as less than you. We've looked at slander and obscene talk, slander being speaking negatively and wrongly of others, And uh, the way that the ESV puts it in verse 8 said obscene talk, we would often think of that as as simply, not simply like it's a low thing, but as only referring to bad jokes that you shouldn't tell, coarse joking. Whereas the word that Paul actually uses is better translated abusive speech. You should not abuse people, berate people, tear them a new one with your mouth. Now, we, sadly, this is far too common in the church. It's far too common, specifically on Facebook, but more importantly, in marriage, where one or both spouses believe that it is somehow appropriate or allowable to shout, berate, demean with their words. Paul says, the the word of God says, this has no place in your life. This this has no place. You should have nothing 
to do with it. Now that's, that's the review, that's the context of where we land. And the reason we bring ourselves up to speed there is because verse 9 presents an 11th thing that uh, we should have nothing to do with, and he puts it in the form of an imperative. So to the uh, studious note taker, this would be technically point one, do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. Now, as the Apostle Paul is continuing this litany of things that should have no business being in our lives, he ends the list, perhaps surprisingly, with the command, not the suggestion, but the command not to lie to each other. Now, if you read the commentaries on why Paul is saying don't lie to each other, they're actually, uh, there's a little bit of a debate as to what he's saying. Not what he's saying, why he's saying it. Some commentators would look at it and they would say, well, Paul is specifically addressing the false teachers. The false teachers are lying to the church. Paul knows about it. Paul's not happy about it. And so he's commanding false teachers, knock it off. Is that a possible understanding of the day? Yeah, absolutely possible. There's another alter, like there's another option for why Paul is commanding us at this point to not lie to each other. That other alternative is that Paul um, was a pastor who lived around Christians. And guess what he knew? We do. We lie to one another. And Paul says, yeah, I don't think it's so limited to be like, hey, his name's Frank. I, oh, I, I used a name. I didn't think we, but I don't think Frank's here today. I'm not talking about that Frank. I'm talking about a mythical Frank in Colossae. So I know Frank is a false teacher. He's lying to you. I'm not going to mention his name. Uh, if there's anybody lying, they should stop now. Like, no, that's not what he's saying. He knows our hearts. And he knows the temptation for gain or for being viewed rightly or to avoid consequences. He knows we are liars. And we should have nothing to do with that. The word of God presents the mouth that God gave man. He he made you a talking, image-bearing creature. And he made you different than the cattle of the field, different than the birds of the air, different than the fish in the sea. He gave you a, a mouth and a voice so that you could do a couple of different things. One of them is so that you could do what we did earlier this Sunday. We sang his praises. He actually made you a singing creature. Another reason why he made you a talking creature so that you could declare his gospel to all nations. What a, what a marvelous gift the voice is. He also gave you a voice so that you could uh, deal out comfort to the hurting and rejoice with the rejoicing. He gave you a voice so that you could encourage one another to not grow weary in doing good. Why then slander? Why then abusive speech? Why then lying? It is counter to the way he created you. To to do these things, it's, it's one, a breach of his law, which is severe enough. 
but it cuts against the grain of the design with which he's designed you. Every time we do one of these things, whether it's explosive anger or or whisperings of malice or slander or obscene talk or lying, we're actually functioning counter to the way he made you. Paul says, have nothing to do with that. Now, we could and probably should at this point, getting through the the first 11 uh, sins or vices that, that Paul says stay away from, we should have this lingering why. Now, it, some of it seems pretty obvious, but enter, humor me for a second. We should have a lingering why. Now, the legalist has one set of reasons. The legalist would read this, uh, this list and be like, okay, these are boxes, and I check the boxes, and I'm going to check the boxes better than, well, my neighbor checks the boxes. And so now when I have this many boxes checked, I can then go boldly into the throne of grace or walk head held head held high around the church and view my, but if I'm low, if I'm low on the box checking, then, then I don't pray like I should. I, you know, I, I wonder if I should take the supper. I, he measures himself on these things. And he views himself in light of his standing with God on these things. But nothing could be further from the truth as to what Paul is driving at. We want to see the real foundation of those isn't a legalistic standing with God, but we want to note secondly, the foundation is simply this, the old man has been put off. The resounding why we shouldn't lie, why we should flee sexual immorality, why we should, we should not tolerate covetousness in our life, why we shouldn't do any of these things. Well, it's not having to do with some weird merit system earning with God. Paul's reasoning couldn't be clear. Verse 10, here's the reason. You, verse, halfway through verse 9, excuse me. Seeing that, or the idea is since you have, the basis for this is having put off the old man, and it actually takes the form of a participle, and then in verse 10, another participle shows up, having put on. Now, we need to distinguish here at this point in the text, what does Paul mean by these two participles? Having put off and having put on. We'll get to the put on uh, for the third point. But what what is he trying to accomplish in these two participles? Is he saying, you, now I'll put it as a participle, but I mean it as an imperative. Is he saying, having put off, and what I mean is you should put this, you should put this off. Well, it's possible that these would have kind of imperatival force. But far better than that, I think it has um, what, what we could call that they're, they're causal, they explain the foundation for the commands. When Paul wants to say, put something off or away from you, you don't have to look any farther than verse 8. There it is in the imperative form, put this away. He's not shy if he wants you to put something to death of putting it as an imperative. Verse 5, put to death. But I think he's doing something different in, the, in verse 9, in the halfway through, and in verse 10. I believe what Paul is doing here is flipping the order a little bit. We often talk about gospel 
uh, indicatives then lead to kind of moral or gospel imperatives. The who you are in the gospel of Jesus Christ is then that foundation for the commands that follow resultingly. He's just given you several imperatives. He says, now let's revisit those gospel indicatives. Why put to death, verse 5? Why put off from you, verse 8? Why do not lie, verse 9? There's a gospel foundation to it. And the foundation is that you have already put off the old man. The ESV says, seen that you have put off the old man. And the NASB says, since you have laid aside, or since you laid aside, the idea is, is this past event has taken place, and then that sets the foundation by which all 11 of the preceding um, vices or sins should have, you should have nothing to do with them. Paul says, listen, Christian." You want to know why all of these are an absolute no, no discussion, no qualification? You have had that old man put off. That is not you any longer. Now, he'll, he'll get to more imperatives. He'll get to, and I think it's verse, yeah, it's verse 12. He'll get to, now put on. And it's a wonderful list. But before he can even address those, he's got to get to this, this foundation of what God has done in the gospel. As G.K. Beale so aptly puts it, he says, the principles are likely not commands, but are understood better as describing the reality of what has happened in the past. Because you have stripped off the old man and because you have clothed yourself with the new man. Brothers and sisters, when the Spirit of God, and to each of us at different points in our life, right? Each of us have different stories of of how the Spirit of God used the gospel of God's grace to make us alive. But, But when the Spirit regenerated you, drew you up from the spiritual dead and united you to the resurrected, ascended, seated Savior, all of those saving benefits became yours. They were were bound inseparably to you. When the Spirit raises you from the dead and then unites you to Christ, it's in that union with Christ that then those benefits become yours. You might say, well, what benefits? Well, one, to not even put it lightly, but to put it in a, in a huge way. Being united to Christ when he died on the cross, it is the old man dying too. There's a, se- a real sense, not like a figurative sense, but a real sense where you died. And then when the Spirit unites you to Christ, that becomes, that becomes real or actual in your life. That bad tree, and, and I'll, I think I mentioned this last week, but I'll harp on it again. I, I think the ESV... Um, 
sadly misses it, but don't get too uh, caught up if you're an NASB guy. They miss it too. The old self, terrible. The old man. It, It would almost be better. The old Adam and the new Adam put forth in Christ. So him saying, you as you were, son of Adam, son of a rebel, son of the the one who is fallen from God, that life that is symbolized and caught up in him, over with, done with, gone, crucified to you, laid to death, laid in the grave, and does not rise again. That old You in the old man or the old Adam, that wicked tree that bore wicked fruit has gone away, has been dealt blows, death blows by Christ at Calvary. You cannot go back to it. It's not even so much a ought not, though there is a sense of ought not. You cannot. It's dead. It won't rise from the dead. It can't be resurrected, revived, resuscitated. It's done. He's killed it. It lies in the grave and lifeless. There's no going, and uh, forgive the morbid analogy, digging it back up. It's gone. Reminds me of these stories are always a little more uh, stressful knowing that my parents do watch the afternoon service. But it also makes them a little more fun, doesn't it? Remember one of my jobs as a, as a young man, we were told in our house, if you don't work, you don't eat. And I liked eating. So uh, we, we had chores to do. One of my chores when I was... <laughs> six and seven, which might startle some of your parents, is I would go and take the garbage from the house and I'd go out and burn it. You might be like, you weren't joking when you said you were a hick that grew up. Yeah, we would burn our garbage. It used to be a thing. So, uh, and being the scavenger that I was, sometimes I would find treasures. <laughs> what sane human would throw out this, you know, uh, wrapping paper roll. That's a sword, a weapon. And I would come back with an armload of treasures, and it drove my mom crazy. So she told me, stop digging into the garbage. She, I said, but what if I see? I don't care what you see. If it is in the trash, you burn it. And for one of the few times in my life, I really took it to heart. And she was cleaning one day and set her brand new dress shoes on the trash. And I came through. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I burned them things. <laughs> and I came back in, and the look on my, fa- on my mom's face was not that of my obedient son. She asked me, did you see shoes on the trash can? Uh-huh. What did you do with them? Burned them. There was no retrieving them. I assure you, that is like what has happened with the old man. There's no retrieving it. 
You may want to go back and try to dig through the, the burning barrel to see if by some miraculous of preservation, they're not burned. But they are. They're done. They're over. They're gone. They're dead. That's the old man in Adam. For every single one of you in Christ today, that wretched, old, sinful man is dead. Never to rise again. What a, we're talking about benefits of the gospel. That old man that you thought you would never be rid of, Christ has done away with it. And when he does away with something, brothers and sisters, it doesn't rise again. When he lays an enemy low, is not coming back. There are greater, there's a greater hope for my mom's shoes than, than that old man rise again. We will note thirdly that not just the old man has been put off, though that is that that would be marvelous enough, that, that would be shocking enough, that is huge, but it's not simply enough that the old man be put off. There must be a new man or new humanity in its place. And so thirdly, we want to note the new man is put on. The new man is put on. Drop your eyes to verse 10. Beautiful way that Paul puts it. And, and have put on the new man, the new Adam. Or you could say it, the second or the last Adam. You have in the gospel, when the Spirit raised you from the dead and knit you inseparably to Christ, guess who you are now? United with the resurrected, seated, and ascended Christ. You are his, and he is yours. And now, Adam not being your federal head any longer, Christ is your head. Christ is your new life. And just like that first Adam will never rise again, the second Adam will never be separated from you. There's a parallel that, goes, that follows both Adams. The one laid irrevocably in the dust, the other seated irrevocably at the right hand. Never shall those two move, and your relationship with the first can never be repaired, and your relationship with the second can never be severed. Oh, the position of the son or the daughter of God. We have to get our arms wrapped around this. Too often we yield and gather all of our identity from the wrong places. I keep thinking of myself by my old last name, Old Adam. And not thinking of, I'm seated with him. He's mine. I'm his. And that'll never change. Do you see the, 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 the security is such a small word for such a big idea? On your best day, however you want to define that, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. On your worst day, seated with Christ in heavenly places. That doesn't change. 
That reality is unshakable. So stop gazing at your own self looking for hope. If I gaze at myself, how much hope am I going to find? Yep, about that much. Zero. But if I gaze at Christ by faith and see him alive and seated and know that I've got union with him, oh, what an identity to live a life out of. Now suddenly it doesn't ebb and flow with with how I am doing or perceive myself to doing. How the world is around me or how it isn't doing around me. I, I am identified and defined by that one with whom I have inseparable union. And I love the way that Paul puts it. You have, put it, put the old man off, past tense, reality continuing, and you have put on the new Adam, the new final Lord Jesus Christ. G.K. Beale says, on this basis, Paul exhorts them, stop being identified with the traits of the former life in the old Adam, but to be characterized by those of the new life that is in indeed the last Adam. The reason Paul commands his readers to lay aside sinful traits is because they've already and decisively laid aside the old unregenerate man and put on the new regenerate man, which gives him, this, this is key, this is beautiful, this is worth the price of the book. They've laid off their old unregenerate man and put on the new recreated man, which gives him power to obey commands. The point is that once the old man has been stripped off, the sins that characterize that old man have been put aside. That's the, the, the order and the foundation of 5 through 9a. Why put to death those things? Why put off those things? Why abstain from those things? Why? Because the old Adam's dead, the old life in Adam is dead, and the new life in Christ is begun, and those traits that were in that one have then no place in this one. You're a new creature. Live like it. Not live like it so that it then becomes true, is true. Now live out of that new life you have in Christ. There's a world of difference between those two. One will imprison you, the other one sets you free. One will will afflict your conscience day and night, and you'll just spin your wheels always wondering. The other says, when the sun makes you free, you're free indeed. Live in light of that freedom that you have. Now, verse 10 continues, having put on the, old, the new man, which is, and now he's going to describe what this new man is like in the direction that it's going, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, I, I think that this is just so encouraging. You might say, what did you read that's so encouraging? Look at that beautiful word there, which is being renewed. You might say, well, then maybe I'm not in Christ because I would expect if the old man's dead and the new, and the, and the new man's alive and put on, no more struggle, no more growth, and I still struggle. Paul says it's being renewed. It doesn't negate that he's been put on and the old one's dead. 
The very nature of life as a Christian is one of being renewed. We, we would use the word progressive sanctification that's, that's carrying on through this life. You are being shaped and formed and fashioned. I find so much encouragement in that lovely little phrase, or I guess it's just, it's a participle. Man, grammar's fun. See at least one. Do you ever just get so dog tired of fighting sin? And, And there's times where it shakes our calm repose. Paul says, believer, the old man's dead. Don't listen to his old decrees. The new man, the new Adam is alive and raised. And you are being renewed in the knowledge of him. Spend the rest of your life doing that. Not to earn something, but because you are already alive. Spend the rest of your life chasing him down and obedience to him. Do that for as many days as God gives you. That's not legalism. That's Christianity. That, that's, that's following the king as he is in Zion and we journey to Zion. That's what the Christian life is. Now, there, there's a direction, there's an object, a thing to which we're being uh, formed. Notice we're being renewed in knowledge. He's actually using his word to do this, applied and illumined by the spirit. But look at the end of verse 10. And it's after the image of its creator. So, so often we, we, we separate really the, the, the commands of God from the very character of God and we can set up these commands disembodied from what they were originally meant to, to be, well, inextricably tied to and we can get all sorts of weird, that's the theological term, all sorts of weird, uh, on it when we lose sight of not what we're becoming but into whose image we're growing. If I look at these things as boxes, I've done a huge disservice, one to the text, and then secondly to myself and my own sanctification, and then kind of uh, flowing out of that, probably turn into a judgmental person and, and it'll impact you. But what if I could see it like this? He's growing me, he's growing you, into the image of his son. And I could view all of this with regard to the person of Christ. Now that transforms do not slander from a box to why would I, why, why would I not slander? Well, it's not, Christ doesn't do that. That's not like Christ. Why would I not be full of malice? Well, Christ isn't like that. And I'm being shaped more and more into his image. Why would, I, why would I have this crazy idea that God gets to tell me what I can and cannot do with my body versus, well, me? Well, well one, it's in the Bible. Two, because Christ doesn't do that. 
And he's the one that we're chasing down. He's the one in whose image we are perpetually pursuing. So rather than seeing these as a detached list, see them for the direction and the object that they're chasing down into the image of its creator. You might say, well, is that creator like the father or is it creator as in like Jesus? Well, I think either way you get to it, it ends up with being Jesus, right? So if, it's view, if, if Paul has in mind Christ who created you per Colossians chapter one, uh, well, then it'd be to, into the image of Christ. But if he has the father in mind, well, who's the image of the father? Christ is. Either way, you end up with Christ. So uh, lastly here, it, it, it's, it's, it's just marvelous what he does at this point. You're growing into the image of Christ. It really is uh, one of the verses I love to think about sanctification is Galatians 4.19. My little children for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What a way to view the Christian life. The patient work of God shaping Christ in me. And the old man's dead, the new man's alive, and so this change can actually happen now. Couldn't happen before when old Adam was still alive and well and full of salt and vinegar in his veins. No, he's dead. You're in Christ. He's shaping him in you. Now, there's an abruptness with with verse 11 that, that should kind of hit us and startle us awake I know it's warm and in the afternoon, but it should startle us awake. Here, there is no, and it's even a little sharper in the Greek, there is not, and then he goes on a list. So in this new man, you might even derive new humanity, those who are united with him, there isn't some stuff. And the stuff that isn't there are all of these divisions. Now, as Pastor Brian pointed out in the morning sermon, are there still uh, eschatological plans for the nations and for the people of Israel? Yeah, there actually are in some of those ways distinctions. But with regards to the gospel here, look at these divisions that are now in the new humanity done away with. The first would be that of uh, ethnic divisions. There's no Greek or Jew. There's no, and then there's a second, well, there's eight in total and four pairs if my counting is correct. There's no circumcised and uncircumcised. Now, we might be tempted to think that that is just simply a repeating of the first two. Jew, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised. And he might be just simply repeating it himself and hitting things from two different directions. Or what he might be saying is that some of these ethnic distinctions. I don't like the term racial distinctions for obvious reasons. I think there's one human race. There's different ethnicities. These hostilities now gone. The divisions between religious, circumcised, uncircumcised, done away. Now it's just one in Christ. And then there's uh, further distinctions that are done away with. Verse 11, barbarian and Scythian. I say, what on earth is that? Well, you're familiar with both of these. A barbarian is a little person 
between the ages of two and about 24, depending on the person. No, it means a non-Greek person. It's actually kind of a funny uh, way that they would call them that based on their language because they thought they talked like bar, 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 like whatever. You don't even know what you're talking about. Those pagan foreign people and then Scythian uh, would be those who lived on the northern side of the Black Sea from what we can tell. You might say, why would Paul say there's no distinction whether you're, whether you're like talking weird and live up in France or you're over there in Russia. You know, either one. People from all sorts of places. He could have, if you wanted to say um, the distinction currently, you might be like, there is now no longer Californian and Nevadan. You might be like, hey, don't go there. We different. He might... <laughs> One in Christ. One. Doesn't matter if they talk differently, look differently, sound differently, have different ways in which they were brought up and raised, eat weird food. One. And if you were to look around, well, slave and free, we'll get to that one. Social distinctions. Distinctions made based off standings or economics or finances. If you were to look around this room even this evening, you would see the, the, the disillusion of those divisions. You would see Jew and Gentile together as one family. You would see people who've come from all sorts of different religious backgrounds abandoning those one in Christ. You would see barbarians and Scythians. I'll let you figure out which one's from Nevada and which one's from California or Washington. Either way, one in Christ. You'll see people of all sorts of financial and social standings, one in Christ. And there's a reason for that. It's the last phrase. But Christ is all and in all. This brings a full circle back around to what we talked about. I think it was just Two Sundays ago, where we talked about an all-sufficient Savior is then by necessity an all-consuming Savior. A Savior who's able to be all for his people actually then has the right to demand that he be all to his people. And so the one thing or the one person who is able to unify under himself a single humanity, a single, we'll use the word church, In his gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ, the new, last Adam, who has raised up his people from the dead, put his spirit uh, within them. They are then united inseparably both to him and to all the others who are in him, which would be you guys. That there's union both with us in Christ and then necessarily us with one another as a result. Christ being the one who is sufficient for all, therefore consuming of all, and a big enough, full enough Savior to save to the uttermost. Why should we flee all of these things listed from 5 through 9a? Because Christ in his goodness and his grace has laid the old man low. 
raised us up with him, united us to him, and to all those who are in him, and we have life in him. Now, therefore, live in that life. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we we ask you, we beseech you, that you would cause us to put away all of the, the lesser ways we view ourselves, and that we would see ourselves really as you see us, united to you, united in a way that can never be separated. Oh God, forgive us for all the ways we live like we were still under the old Adam. We praise you that we are no longer under the tyranny that we once were, but we are under the right rule of Christ. Oh God, may your law then be to us a delight. May your ways, may your ways be a fullness and a joy to us, your people. Because they speak of Christ and they point to Christ and they form Christ more fully in us. We want to be made more like our Savior. Please continue your faithful work. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com dot com.